What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Investors are not your friends. And that's not to say they're bad people. I actually like my investors and I think they're really good partners and I would recommend them. But I had the misinterpretation that they were there for me you know, as an individual. And it was really an unhealthy perspective to have. And I think once I recognized that they're there for themselves, they're there for their own financial interests, for their own company. And it wasn't until I really had that lesson that like it really helped me in future rounds because in future rounds, I kind of came to the table understanding, okay, you've got your business, I've got mine, but we're not friends here. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode Investors Are Not Your Friends. Some businesses are born from a place of deep need. A feeling that an idea or product is so essential it needs to get out to the world. The thought being you should build something people want and build something you want. But others are driven by a sheer passion for entrepreneurship, wanting to start something and own something with a bit of impartiality about what exactly it is. Our guest today, Dinah Trout, the CEO of HealthAid Kombucha, back in 2012, really knew she wanted to start a business. So did her two business partners, her best friend, Vanessa Dew, and her husband, Justin Trout. And they went from feeling stuck in their careers to succeeding wildly on their entrepreneurial journey, selling 4 million cases of kombucha in 2019. And to fuel that journey, they brought in along the way almost $50 million in venture capital funding, which has taught Dinah a lot about managing expectations. But before HealthAid Kombucha was in store refrigerators around the country, it was a literal byproduct of a company idea she had. It started when Dinah, Vanessa, and Justin formed an informal entrepreneurship club and huddled around her kitchen table batting around ideas for a business. They landed on something a little unconventional. Funny enough, we we came across information that showed us a lot of people in the in the world were using kombucha scobies or the culture that you make kombucha with as a mask on the head to regrow hair. And I had learned how to make kombucha a good decade before that in graduate school. Um, I went to school for nutritional biochemistry. I was really into food and just like healing with it, cooking with it. And anyway, so I was into fermenting things and making kombucha. So it all kind of came together. We realized. We could make kombucha, we could make scobies, and we could potentially put these on people's heads and, um, <laughs> and make a business out of it. But that's not in the end what we ended up doing. <laughs> but did it work? <laughs> no. We never actually tried one scoby on one head. Because, so we made you had this you had this byproduct of your experimenting, right? Like you had com- actual kombucha. And, yeah. And of and- course, I knew what kombucha was, and I loved it, and I made a really good one. And 
Um, so like I would give it to my friends and stuff, but I didn't think it was going to be our business because there was already kombucha you could buy in the store. I mean, it wasn't nearly as big as it is today, but even then you could go to the grocery store and, you know, pick from four different brands. So for us thinking, you know, we had no idea about beverage, um, and no experience in that, in that industry, we didn't think we could even, like, it wasn't even a thought that we could enter that world. And it wasn't until we made, you know, 60 cases of kombucha and, you know, we're trying to, we're struggling figuring out how to get this SCOBY into like, you know, something that could be sellable as a hair mask um, that we kind of realized, okay, we've got 60 cases of really good kombucha. Let's just give it a try at the farmer's market um, with really little expectation, um, thinking it would just be a summer project. It turned into something way bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did you go from just saying, we're going to try selling this at the farmer's market to that light bulb moment of like, wait, this is working. Yeah. It, seem, it seems so natural yet to change your mind about it is a big step, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the way I describe it, it almost sounds like it just sort of happened and, and we were there to watch it happen. And it really was way more active than that. It was not a passive thing. Um, you know, yes, showing up at the farmer's market, we thought it was just going to be a summer's project, but even in that summer's project, I've never worked harder. You know, we pushed so hard to make sure that every single person that walked into that market was going to taste our kombucha. You know, um, it was a very uh, physically tough summer. And um, we tried so hard to basically do our very, very best at selling our kombucha and making a brand and building, you know, something really special. So, yeah, I mean, it, there were several milestone moments in that summer that kind of, I guess, would together um, make up that light bulb moment. Um, you know, just a, maybe the second or third mark. I mean, first we sold out in the first hour um, of our first market, which was like, whoa, we didn't expect to do that, you know? And even the farmer's market manager was like, that was, that was unusual. <laughs> and we're like, okay, let's see if we can do that again. And we did. And then, um, you know, I don't know, maybe it was three or four markets later, there was like a line down the street before the market even opened. And I remember looking at Justin, because at that time, the three of us would all go to one market. Um, but I remember looking at Justin and being like, this is special. Like we're, we've hit something here. People want our kombucha. They like it enough to line up at eight in the morning, you know? Um, so there was like moments like that, that really hit us. Um, another light bulb moment, I think is just the, you know, in the market, a lot of businesses get started and a lot of businesses stop, you know, they start and then they kind of, you know, don't, don't continue forward. And we watched and we started alongside a lot of other businesses, a lot of other businesses that had great product. But one of the realizations we had in the market was we were really good at this. Like we were good at pushing ourselves to do better each week, um, at communicating with consumers at, at, you know, it wasn't just that we had a good product because I think a lot of companies did. And so another light bulb moment was just a little bit that we were like built for this. And, um, and that we, we were unusually good at it compared to others. Um, and so we watched a lot of other companies kind of close their doors and it wasn't that at all that made us feel good. It didn't, but what we did recognize is like we had something, um, that others didn't, and it was more than just the kombucha. Um, so I guess those two things together. And I mean, at the end of that year, so that was 2012 at the end of that year, we were so tired. We all had full-time jobs. And then we were on top of that making kombucha, selling kombucha in the farmer's markets. We were in seven markets by the end of that summer. Um, 
it was so tiring. We kind of recognized that there was no way for us to give more to health aid. Like we were already giving more than a person could give to something. And so we sort of had to make a call. It was like, well, we're either going to keep doing it like this and it's never going to get bigger because we're just already putting our max in or we take a chance and we bet on ourselves and we quit our jobs and yeah, we don't know where the money's going to come from and yeah, we don't know all these things and it's super duper scary and it was scariest moment ever. But we kind of made the call to say, no, this is what we set out to do and like everything's telling us this is going to work. So let's just do it. And so by the end of the year, we quit our jobs. It was super scary, as I mentioned, because we didn't have any security from a financial perspective, no sense of where and when our paycheck was going to come. Um, but that was probably the most important decision we ever made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that day that you you quit your jobs and then all of a sudden you are full-time kombucha brewers and marketers and makers. How did, how did that look? Um, how did you go about the beginnings of building it into a real company rather than something that was just happening, you know, in your kitchen at your kitchen table? Yeah. I mean, I think the reason I call that moment a milestone leaving our jobs and doing health aid full time is that we really recognize, I mean, besides the fact that that was us like really committing you know, to it. Um, but what really, the reason it was a milestone and why it moved, it was a marquee moment for health aid because, um, in, in, um, in January when we started, you know, we were now giving 18 hours a day each to this business instead of just the four or five we had after work. Um, and when, when we were doing that, it was like, obviously more time, but also just more dedication from a um, strategic standpoint. Like we kind of recognized very quickly, okay, for us to pay our bills with this, we're going to need to make X, you know, and before it wasn't even really the thought for us. It was just kind of like grow, let's see where this can go. And, and, and when we quit our jobs, it became much more like, oh no, for us to survive, we need this. For us to get this, we need, you know, at least double the sales each week or, or double the sales each month and 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 we we were able to basically put together a really strong plan um, of accounts, and it became very clear that the three of us were not going to be able to do it alone. There are so many challenges to to distributing a product that is not only you know a grocery product, but it's one that needs refrigeration. It's yeah. it's heavy. It's in glass bottles. How did you? What's I guess what's the learning curve on on distribution um, for kombucha? <laughs> Oh, it's nonstop and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> but, you know, in I would say for us, everything moved very fast and it wasn't, it was, it was natural, but it was, um, it wasn't passive, if that makes sense. And, but the, the reason I open with that is I, I also like to say it was very organic. Like I didn't know anything in advance about distribution and you don't really need to, because to get from a farmer's market to a store, you really just need four wheels on a car you know, at first. And that's what we did at first. We self-distributed everything um, in our cars and like cooler bags, much like, you know, you might figure that out yourself with no experience. And then we started to recognize that our cars were limited in size and refrigeration and like you could only go so far. So that's when we got our first refrigerated van, which we leased. Um, and then we needed a driver because it really didn't make sense. And we knew this, that um, one of us driving the car all day, you know, we, we, we would be better spent, um, we would, our time would be better spent growing the business. So 
you know, then we got a driver. And so lo and behold, within a few months, we kind of have a small distribution side to our business. Um, I mean, we're distributing our own product. So I guess it's more a part of our company, but we started to learn a lot about routes and, and drivers and pickup times at stores. And so, you know, it was very organic, um, how we grew. Um, then there was a point where our van became so overloaded with deliveries. Like we were delivering seven days a week, all waking hours that it was either time for us to start looking into third party distribution or to get another van. And we hated the distribution part. It was so challenging to manage that route traffic. It was limiting in so many ways, right? Like we couldn't get outside of, I mean, you know, the traffic, don't forget the traffic here is so bad, you know? So, Oh yeah. You're in um, Los Angeles, of course. <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of like, we were sort of spending all this time managing this very difficult part of the business that wasn't fun to us and was really a distraction from our growth. Um, from the time we could spend on on growing the company, I guess you could say. And so that's when we decided to get into third-party distribution. And our first one, yeah, was a lot of learning, you know, figuring out, you know, what's the right pricing model? Like, how do you get the product to them? But we recognized, you know, with our first distribution order that like, oh yeah, they do this way better than we do. And we were able to expand much, much faster through their distribution. Fast forward to today, we have over 150 trucks that take us to 40,000 stores across the country, you know, I would not have known how to do that um, in the very beginning. And I think what I like to tell fellow entrepreneurs is that's okay. You don't need to know that at the beginning. You'll figure it out as you need to, as you need to grow. Um, and that's really been across all aspects of growing this business. You only need to know what your next step is or your next two steps are. You don't have to know how you get all the way there just yet. Yeah, I, I like that. You know, your business just put one foot in front of the other and just yeah. kept going um, next day after next day. Um, but did you at any time have, did you have any mentors that you could turn to, any folks that you were looking to emulate who'd been there and done that before um, that you could turn to for advice? You know, this is one of the things that I love about um, entrepreneurs today in particular. I find they're very good about reaching out and um, getting support and mentorship from others that have been there and done that. I was not one of those people. And it's one of the things I regret most um, and wish if I could do it again, I would absolutely do that. I, I don't know how everyone is, but my understanding is that no matter who you call, um, they're almost always willing to give you 30 minutes. And if you're really structured with that time and good with your questions, they'll probably give you another 30. So for me, I'm impressed with founders when they call me and ask me questions because they're so put together. And I think, wow, why didn't I do this? You know, in the beginning, it was a lot of me figuring it out on my own. Um, so no, I didn't do it as much as I would have liked. Although I think what I learned is they're totally there and they're totally willing to talk to you. So you should. And it's so great that you do mentorship yourself now. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I've become really, really busy with it. So I used to sort of just offer it to anybody that reached out and now there's, it's a little bit more difficult to get on the calendar. So I feel my time is better suited when I like, you know, select people to really kind of, even if it's informal, but like really be able to help, you know, where I'm like, okay, at least I can get on the phone and commit to twice a month calls, you know? So I've got a few companies that I do that with. Um, but yeah, if I ever have 30 minutes free, it's almost always with a fellow, um, entrepreneur that's, 
you know, aspiring to grow something. And, um, you know, in, in those calls, I don't really give advice because I don't believe in advice. I think every situation is so unique that I, how could I possibly know what you should do? Um, but I am there as a sounding board. And I think at the very least that's helpful because I've been there. And I think even just entrepreneurs hearing, oh, wait, you know, health aid had moments where they may, you know, may have questioned whether they could pay, pay payroll. You know, it's helpful for entrepreneurs to hear that because I think we all, you know, over exaggerate or over glorify what another's experience must have been like. You know, I am, I'm constantly humbled and comforted knowing that Nike was once a business that was smaller than mine. You know, like I think about that a lot. I'm like, okay, if Nike can do it, I can do it. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so what uh, looking back at the at the early years, and then the years of sort of fast growth that followed, um, what what, um, what time comes to mind as, as a time where you were just like, wow, I can't believe we got through that, or I can't believe I personally got through that. Um, what was the, What was the, the kind of roughest patch for you? What I'll tell you is that every piece of growth has to be fought for there is a price for it. It doesn't just happen. You don't just go from, you know, one store to a hundred stores without a painful moment. And in those painful moments, you're growing. So of course there are things you learn along the way. And I guess you could call them mistakes, although I hate to call them mistakes because usually it's not something I knew better. Um, I only know better after the experience. So it really is just learning, you know, it's just growing up. Something that's always rough is is funding periods, times where you're raising money. Those are always really, really tough moments. And uh, even if you have great partners, and we do, you know, it's it's emotionally challenging and physically challenging because first of all, it's taking up more time than you have to give. Um, you forget that when you're running a business as a CEO, founder, you don't usually like evaluate the amount of time it takes to raise money. Um, and manage the board and the stakeholders and the potential investors, it can be like suddenly 80 hours a week and that you literally don't have. So it's challenging from that perspective, from just a physical number of hours in the day perspective. But then it's, it's very emotionally challenging too, because uh, this is your company. And in a lot of ways, it's your baby and you really treat it like that. It's a personal thing. It's not business, you know, to a founder. I mean, a portion of it's business and we say it's business, but it's like your baby. And during times of fundraising, someone's trying to value what your baby's worth. <laughs> if you're going to think your baby's worth a heck of a lot more um, than someone else who's trying to get a deal, right? And of course, all these investors are. So those periods are always very tough on a founder. If you ever hear um, a founder or CEO going through a fundraising, like give them a hug because everybody needs it. And, and it's always hard. So many lessons in each of my rounds of funding and specifically the lesson of, you know, investors are not your friends. And that's not to say they're bad people. I actually like my investors and I think they're really good partners and I would recommend them. But I had the misinterpretation that they were there for me, you know, as an individual. And it was really an unhealthy perspective to have. And I think once I recognized that they're there for themselves, they're there for their own financial interests, for their own company, and it wasn't until I really had that lesson that like it really helped me in future rounds because in future rounds, I kind of came to the table understanding, okay, you've got your business, I've got mine, but we're not friends here. We're not friends at the table that you know are going to hug after or something like that. So 
this might sound really immature, but in the beginning I did come forward sort of thinking that, that we were like really close in partnership. And I think I recognized that that's not the role of an investor. It was an mm. important lesson. Yeah. What, what caused you to kind of realize that or start to rethink it? Well, of course the, uh, the deal went bad, you know, you start to recognize that, um, what, you know, I thought investors would give me the benefit of the doubt for X, Y, and Z. Um, but I, I kind of failed to recognize when assuming that, that their interests would be compromised if they did that. I only thought about health aid's interests. And it's a really naive way to look at things if you're only looking at things from the angle of your company. You're much better off if you think about what's in it for them. Like really understand what your investor group, they need probably... 3x return to think this is a good model. They probably want to get out in five to seven years if they're a typical private equity group. Um, if you think, if you start thinking through things from their lens, you start to recognize why they might value you the way they are, why they might approach a decision the way they do. So yeah, in this particular instance, I thought um, they would have given me more benefit than the doubt. We had made targets um, for the year um, that we didn't reach. Our targets were 4X. We wanted to grow 400% from the year before, which really is like a pie in the sky number. I should have never picked 400%, especially as a number to share with my board because um, I love reaching for the stars, um, but I want to celebrate even if we only hit the moon, right? And, and in this case, because I picked the stars as the goal and we landed at 3X, not 4X, which is still unbelievable year, I thought it would still be good enough, you know, to to prove that we did well. But in fact, you know, that was not the case. It was as if it was sort of treated as if I, I did zero, you know, and that really hurt me. It really upset me. It really demotivated me. I went through a long sort of dark swampy mess of despair, uh, feeling like my investors weren't partners. They didn't understand, you know, but all these things happened because I incorrectly approached it. I incorrectly set targets for board um, for the board. And I, and I sort of incorrectly assumed that, you know, why, why should they take the compromise? And, and again, now looking back, I, I'm like, yeah, they, I probably would have done the same thing if I were in their position, because remember they've got their own business, which has a group of investors and they can't just compromise on all of these things because the founders made a mistake or, so it was my own learning. Um, and I always try to, um, share that with other founders that, it's not that you want to like pad your numbers for the board, but what you want to do with your investors is offer a realistic expectation of your growth for the following year and not over-exaggerate it. Having internal goals that are bigger is a great idea, um, but you should be picking something that's reasonable and something that you have like a large level of confidence that you can hit when you pick goals for the board, especially if they're tied to any kind of <laughs> equity shares of your, of your own or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you mentioned that when um, when that all went down, that you were feeling like just so low um, about it and feeling that kind of mistrust. How do you um, how do you get through those those dark periods where you're feeling either instable or insecure or like your your priorities are not aligned with others? Um, how do you kind of personally and as a leader get through that? Mm -hmm. It's really tough. You know, it's really tough and you have to, the short answer is you got to find it. And I think, you know, I just want to recognize that the, 
the the challenge is real and it's and it's very lonely and it's very um, hard to get through. How do you motivate yourself when you're yourself feeling dejected? How do you inject inspiration into a company when you're the one that needs inspiration? And that is the toughest thing of being a CEO and founder. Um, I think is is essentially creating this energy out of nowhere and and showing up with a smile and as the rock, even when you're a crumbling mess, <laughs> which, you know, it is the truth. Everybody is human and goes through those moments. Um, and the company needs you to be stable. It needs you to be strong. And so you have to show up like that. Um, and how do you do it? I don't know. You got to find it. When we come back, I'll talk to Dinah about what it's like to run a business with her husband and her best friend. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk about something else that um, is is both like really wonderful and inspiring and also I imagine really difficult. Um, one of your business partners is your husband. <laughs> How do you make that work? <laughs> Oh. So I'll start with saying that Justin and I, I mean, he's my best friend. We're, he's the closest person I have on this world um, to me. And I would say we're madly in love, but it takes mad work um, and to keep, to, to keep it like that. And um, especially because we work together. I think it takes work for any marriage to work and any relationship to work, um, period. But it's in particular... So you have three kids, you know, um, <laughs> life in marriage becomes different when you have children. Why? Because there's a whole new set of responsibilities and work that now needs to be done. And that's with one kid. Now you add more with the second and more with the third, right? So business is really no different than that. It's kind of like a couple kids. It's like throwing a couple kids onto the burner. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's just more work that you have to sort through and um, more opportunities for conflict and disagreement and all this kind of stuff. So just like parenting though, yeah, you, you work it out. You have to communicate. You got to figure out, um, you know, a common ground and, you know, some kind of way to align. Um, you both have to be willing to align. So I think we've grown incredibly strong because of the business. Um, but it did, it didn't just happen. Right. So I yeah. Mean, did you set any ground rules at the, at the beginning? I mean, is there even a way to do that? <laughs> You know, ground rules at the beginning, I'd say is almost like, um, I mean, I can share with you the ground rules we've created, but really they're going to be individual for, for each relationship. So Justin and I are very opposite. He's very system oriented. Um, he likes, he likes systems and rules, um, to make things go efficiently. And they do go more efficiently with systems and rules, but I'm not the person to create those. I'm very good at big, big picture, creative, inspirational things. I'm good at starting really big things for the business. I'm good at getting people pumped about it, at getting everybody to align. Um, but what I am not good at is, you know, creating the most efficient way to get something done. He is. 
And so naturally we're going to have a lot of conflict because the stuff I want to do is sometimes very difficult to execute. Um, and I, but I believe it, you know, and I'll get the team to believe it. And he's like, you know, so we have a lot of conflict inherently. It's a good thing for business. Conflict's a really good thing because when two people are in conflict, it means they care, but they both have a differing opinion. So like on the other side of that, when they can get alignment, theoretically, it's better for the company because both, you know, both sort of thoughts have been taken into um, consideration and made better. Um, anyway, my point is we have a lot of conflict at work. Obviously that, that doesn't bode well in a personal relationship when you come home because that stuff sort of comes with you. Um, and we've had to learn over the years that as soon as we talk about work at home, it's just not a good idea. Um, that's a challenge, right? Cause don't you look to your partner at home over dinner you know, you want to talk through how your day went. Um, maybe you want to vent a little bit. That's all very natural, but you can't really do that with your co-founder. Um, and, and part of the reason is, um, I mean, unless you're totally in alignment and you're both just venting about the same thing, fine, save those situations. If I start talking to Justin about some problem I'm having at work, and let's be honest, when you're venting, a lot of times it's that sort of like, I'm helpless, I'm the victim, you know, that's what venting is. You kind of feel bad about yourself and you're taking that moment to sort of feel bad about yourself. Well, if you're a chief at the company and you're seeing this happen with a fellow chief, you know, you're going to call them on it and you're going to be like, so what are you going to do about it? You know, and why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? So very quickly, um, a venting session turns into a business session. And that's of course not what you want when you're renting. So yeah, we had to create a bunch of ground rules. Yeah. Like number one, don't talk about work at home. It almost always doesn't end well. Um, and you know, number two, really like identify I'm venting. I'm, I need five minutes to vent. Um, and the other person now recognizes, okay, that means I'm basically not supposed to say anything <laughs> and just listen. Um, so, you know, two really easy things or simple things, but very hard to do. Um, imagine having a really, 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 really tough day at work and just not talking about it when you get home, even though that's the other star player, you know? Um, so challenging to do, but we've had enough lessons along the way to know you just do it. You just do it. And kids actually make it easier because there's a whole other world that we can talk about. Yeah. Um, you got the kindergarten projects. Or exactly. And your kids don't want to hear you talk about work, you know? Right. Um, the last thing is, you know, I say this a lot, but what you feed grows and what you don't dies. So it's not just enough to not talk about work. That's sort of like the passive way, but you also have to like, you know, just like in, a, in any marriage, you have to grow that part of the relationship. You can't only be founders and parents together. You also have to be married. So like date nights are super important for us. They're like non-negotiable that we go twice a month um, and that we don't talk about health aids. So it's sort of, it's really no different. And I know the reason I, I know you're a mom of three and anybody who's a parent understands um, that with more work comes that burden to the relationship. And being a co-founder with your husband is, is really no different than that. Just think about it like one or two more kids added to the burner. So you just have to work through it and we're stronger for it. Um, you know, they, they, they say you should never, you know, live with your best friend or start a company with your best friend, but you, you started with your two best friends ostensibly. <laughs> How, your other co-founder was your, your very close friend. Has that relationship been easier or more difficult to manage than that with your husband? I've read that too. And I've, um, I've seen a lot of co-founding relationships go wrong um, and friendships go sour. Um, 
And so I understand where that comes from, but for us, that has just not been the case. Um, Vanessa and I have had very few tough moments. Sure, there have been times that we disagree and I don't know why um, it has worked so well for us. I think for one, um, we're very similar people, we're very similar people and we just think of things very similarly. So um, I, I think that really helps um, that we're always usually on the same page. Even when we disagree, we kind of, we understand the other person so well that there's never any kind of like hatred that evolves out of it or negativity. Another thing is we communicate a lot and very honestly and openly. But I think a really key piece, and I just want to mention this because I know a lot of people out there are trying to find their founding partner. And by the way, it makes a lot of sense to pick your best friend because you trust them and you might have aligned interests. The amount of work and dedication has to be equal um, unless that's so upfront and open from the beginning. And I think that's one of the things where the three of us, we always were aligned. Like the three of us, this was everything to us. This was going to be our everything. We didn't have any other money. Um, this was like our shot at our dream and we all had the same dream. Um, and so as a result, we all put in the same amount of work. It was like everything we got, it's health aids. And so there was never any kind of um, res resentment that grew because one person was putting more into the business than the other, which is almost always where I see problems. Um, in founding relationships, you know, you start together with this big idea, but then one person kind of only puts in half of what the other person does. And then over time that resentment grows. So my suggestion there um, is to, at the very beginning, really think through, don't just think through how this relationship will go well. It's better actually to think through how the relationship will go if, it's, if it goes sour. So to actually talk through in the very beginning, okay, Let's say one of us, God forbid, gets horribly ill and can't put more you know, time into the business. They, they, they went from putting 100% of their time to the business to 20%. What do we do? And the reason it's important to talk that out when you're friends <laughs> is, um, is you start, you basically create agreements around different scenarios so that when that time does come, and even if that person isn't ill, the, you know, let's say they decide that they want to go a different direction or they get offered a job that's, you know, you've already thought through what to do and it just becomes, an, you know, a way that you can still maintain the relationship. Um, so anyway, I guess long story short is Vanessa and I have not had those problems, but we've communicated throughout the process a lot and upfront, we, you know, equally dedicated work. So there was never any resentment about that. So let's talk about um, the current state of health aid. And I guess let's let's go a little bit in the past. I know in 2019, you had 200 employees and hit 4 million cases sold. Uh, <laughs> it, that's amazing. That's a huge amount of kombucha. Um, yeah. Give me a picture of what the business looked like going into 2020. Yeah. So we were expecting to grow another 20, 25%. And we were actually undergoing quite a few um, manufacturing improvements from an equipment standpoint. So recognize that our number of employees might go down in the year, but that wasn't um, in relation to, um, I mean, of course it's horrible when people lose their jobs. So from that perspective, it was bad, but for the business in the end, it, you know, it's important to get more efficient as you grow. So from an employee standpoint, I think we were expecting to go down a little bit and then grow 20, 25%. 
And then 2020 happened. <laughs> yeah, what happened? What did you what 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 did you do come March? Yeah, so it was a really crazy year for everybody, and um, luckily we weren't like a target hit of COVID. In fact, um, kombucha consumption went up a little bit. We were expecting to grow. That 25 percent was actually expecting to grow mostly from convenience store um, acceleration and 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 increase just distribution into uh, convenience stores and then also on premise, which is sort of like restaurants and bars and cafes. So those two areas of business were very affected by COVID. And so our plans to grow 25% really just didn't, you know, come out. And it wasn't because com com consumers weren't drinking kombucha. It was just because those opportunities to grow into those two channels weren't going to happen this year. Yeah. And those are kind of brand new to, to you and to health aid. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Again, not a horrible place to be because con consumers are still buying it where we're at. And so, and where we're at is still open, which is grocery. So we definitely doubled down on grocery and just made sure that we were always in stock. But then another sort of positive to COVID for our business was we turned on direct to consumer in a very big way. I mean, it was a tiny part of our business and people just weren't buying their kombucha online, but now that's really shifted as they don't want to go into stores as much. So um, gosh, it's like, it's actually a pretty big channel of ours now, even bigger than club, which is like Costco and stuff like that. So, you know, it did force us um, to reprioritize some of our dollars and, and really learn a whole new channel. But in the end, it's been really good for us because direct to consumer is a, is a whole new channel of business. So in the end, I think we'll grow about 10% this year. And I'm really happy to say we didn't have to have any layoffs because of COVID. Um, we've been able to maintain enough growth to basically sustain that. So overall, it's been a very, very tough year to navigate. It's been the hardest of my of my career um, as a CEO to you know manage manufacturing um, during this time, working from home, and then all the challenges that have come from COVID. But I'm also very grateful that we have a product that people can still buy yeah, that's fantastic. Were, the, were there changes you had to make to your, your manufacturing facility or process um, kind of immediately or through March, April, May when, when we were starting to understand? Yeah. yeah. I mean, part of the biggest, part of the hardest um, part of manufacturing was that there was no guidance. Like it wasn't like when COVID hit, there was like some kind of like FDA document that said, here's the new protocol. Um, you really did have to figure it out yourself. And even if you were um, just a citizen of the country, you remember how much misinformation was out there and how, how difficult it was to just understand the facts. It was the same for running a business. Um, so part of the challenge in the beginning was just trying to understand all the information that was coming at us, what was fact, what was fiction, and how might we best adjust and evolve our um, protocols to keep everybody safe, our employees and our consumers. And so you know, it was just long hours and sh a lot of, we did a lot of best practice sharing with fellow manufacturers. It was a pretty cool moment actually, where we gathered, um, you know, a lot of Los Angeles food manufacturers just hopped on a phone. We got each other's number. I remember within 48 hours of COVID coming to LA, I had 20 business owners on the phone. We all just started sharing ideas of what we're implementing, what we're not implementing, what's working, what's not. And out of that, I think, it was nothing kind of groundbreaking. A lot of people were like doing the temperature check thing well before the temperature check thing was normal. Um, Did you have masks yet at that point or not yet? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the masks and like gloves, well, we were already doing gloves, but masks was really the new thing. 
And that was not difficult to to do. Although if you remember that N95 mask, that was, those were hard to get in the beginning. Um, so masks, weight, a lot more sanitation. We do now staggered, uh, staggered break times, staggered start times, huddles in the parking lot, six feet as much as we can. We do regular COVID tests. We have a whole COVID screening program. You know, it's, it's pretty extensive and it, and it, and it definitely adds costs and burden to the business, but I'm happy to say we've had no, no outbreaks and, um, you know, maintain the health of, of our community as a result. So it's worth it. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, what's the future, big future for health aid? Are you, I mean, are you entertaining any acquisition offers or do you want to IPO or do you have a, a next kind of big step? You know, from a financial standpoint, I think um, the future really has so many options. Um, they're they're all gonna. I, I'm only gonna do what's really good for the business. So I, I don't really know. There's no plans for that except um, to continue to build a really really healthy business. I do recognize, though, for us to get to our goal of every fridge in America and beyond, um, we'll likely need um, new partners along the way. And um, I don't know how that will look, but I imagine that will, you know present itself to me. And just like every other decision, we'll evaluate and make the right call. But as far as the exciting stuff, like where I'm planning to go with health aid, whoever my partners are, um, is, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to get to every fridge in America. We're going to be a brand that represents good for you beverage and maybe even food, but definitely good for you, better for you options. I want health aid to be an enterprise that includes beverages beyond kombucha that you know when you buy are good for you, make you feel good and taste good. So that's our intention. And we'll be innovating quite a bit over the next few years to expand our offering. Fantastic. Thank you, Dinah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. After talking with Dinah, it's clear that she's reflected and learned from each step of her company's growth over the past eight years. I loved her thoughts about setting boundaries between her business and her personal life, and setting boundaries with her company's investors, too. She talked about her own audacious goals. She loves to shoot for the stars. But she's learned to manage expectations with outside partners and investors. She came to this theory of doing good business projections after a blunt realization. Investors are not your friends. It doesn't mean they are bad. It just means their motivations aren't going to be giving you the benefit of the doubt at every turn. And coming from someone who knows how to manage business and one's personal life, that's certainly something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, send them some links to your favorite episodes. Also, it's truly helpful if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds, and it helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at what I know at inc.com. Who's an entrepreneur you admire whose story you'd love to hear. You can also let me know anytime on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who's 
brewing up something bubbling mysteriously in a giant glass vat himself is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.